Hi, Cherise here with a special announcement. You can now enjoy select episodes of Detailed in video form. That's right. Detailed is now available on RCAT's YouTube channel. Now, you may be thinking, I already listened to the podcast. No need to watch it on YouTube. Well, trust me, if you don't want to miss out, even if you're an avid listener of the podcast, the video format is a completely different experience. Not only is it like hanging out with us, but you also get to hear parts of the conversation that were left on the cutting room floor. You can also see the photos, drawings, and video as we discuss the incredible projects that are featured. Come join us on YouTube. Follow the link in our show notes, and let's get into the details. This is an original podcast by RCAT. Try the number one most used website for finding building product information and save time and money. No registration is required with RCAT, so try it today and get ahead on your next project. Visit RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T.com. This is Detailed. An original podcast by RCAT. I am your host, Sharice Lakeside, Senior Specification Writer at RDH Building Science and fondly known as the CSI Kraken. We will speak with professionals who share their insights into the most complex, interesting, and odd building conditions and the ingenuity it took to make it work. Join me as I pull back the curtain on the building industry and uncover the lessons learned. You'll gain valuable knowledge to help you better navigate your next project. Hello, and welcome to Detailed. I am Sharice Lakeside. My guest today is Michael Great, Managing Design Principal and Director of Design Strategy at Ankara Moisson Architects, consequently also a former employer of mine, so we used to work together. Michael is a graduate of the University of Oregon. Go Ducks, even though I've kind of switched to the beaver side. I'll, I'll do a Go Ducks for you. With nearly 20 years experience in the architecture and design industry, he has led the design on some of Ankrum's largest projects, and they do some big projects across all types and markets. Michael currently manages a team of architects and designers working primarily in the office and housing sector. And in addition, he serves as the firm's current director of design strategy, where he challenges design teams to streamline design processes, which I love and pursues emerging technologies, including mass timber and volumetric modular projects. I had to practice those three words earlier. The project we're going to chat about today is the Harder Mechanical Headquarters. When Michael and I spoke the other day and had our little kind of pre-recording chat, and he started telling me about this project, I heard things like, the owner was self-performing some of the work, CLT construction, Adapted Integrated Project Delivery Method, Tackling Unique Design Requirements Due to Civil Unrest. How many people get to say that? And also the historic nature of the neighborhood and a a long-term business. So I knew right off the bat, this was going to be an interesting conversation. So first, why don't you briefly kind of recap the story of this project and and the main things that you needed to achieve with this building? Yeah, this project goes back to 2018. There was an RFP that went out for this project, and so we went after it. 
And so at the time, this one interested us because it was on MLK. An urban environment on a street that's had a lot of history has, you know, a lot of interesting pieces and parts. The client, Harder Mechanical, they were great. They do some much larger projects. My name is Michael Strachan, and I am the marketing manager with Harder Mechanical Contractors. So Harder Mechanical is headquartered in Portland, Oregon. We are a mechanical contractor that specializes in complex process piping and HVAC systems. It's a company that's sought after to do types of um, process piping and HVAC work that other contractors don't have the experience. It's highly specialized work that we do. We do, we work in the commercial, industrial, and semiconductor industries. That's everything from healthcare, commercial buildings, to oil refineries, and pulp and paper mills, to computer chip manufacturing facilities. Founded in 1934, the company had outgrown its location and was looking to create a new, modern headquarters in which to build their future. Ankara Moisson Architects stepped in to help them design a 25,000-square-foot, beautiful, two-story dark brick office building in Portland, Oregon. Located along Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Portland's historic Elliott neighborhood, a community aesthetically identified by the brick buildings and early 20th century residences, the new harder mechanical building needed to stay rooted in the past while being built for the future. I have many stories about the building that they were in. It's a building that had been there probably 80 or 90 years and it had been remodeled you know, every 10 years since. There were actually no exterior windows on the building that faced the street. They'd all been boarded up over the years. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard in Portland's historic Elliott neighborhood has become a hub for social movements to raise awareness. There is an annual march for human rights and dignity where participants march three miles down MLK Boulevard from Peninsula Park to the MLK statue at the convention center. The goal is to bring awareness to social inequities, civil rights issues, and pay homage to the civil rights leader on the federal holiday in his honor. However, bad actors can sometimes take advantage of these types of events, causing damage to property, most notably seen with the social unrest during the summer of 2020. The original building, our older building, if you see before pictures, before it was torn down, there were no windows on the first floor, and it was uh, during a previous time in Portland where the decision was actually made to cinder block up the entire first floor so it was there were no windows on the first floor. As a mechanical and plumbing subcontractor, Harder self-performed their own scope and became an essential part of the design process. The office was intended to double as a showcase space so cross-laminated timber, CLT, emerged as an essential design element that helped expose and display innovative mechanical systems provide environmental benefits for the occupants, and save time and cost on installation. It has to be a really unique situation to have your client be basically a mechanical subcontractor in this project, along with the general who I, I believe was Swinnerton. So how'd that go? It was great, actually. I mean, it was the first few meetings we had uh, with Harder, and they were very upfront. They said, you know, we take a lot of pride in the work we do. And they were excited to kind of showcase that, showcase what they're capable of in their own space. It's great to have people come through into our buildings, potential clients, current clients, 
you know, contractors, GCs that we want to partner with, just to be able to walk through and actually point, you know, 12 feet above somebody's head and explain, you know, a system that we're, that we're pitching to them to go into the building or showing them how we problem solved in our own space while in our own space showing off our work. They were pretty intrigued with Mass Timber, and I think they kept pursuing it and kept kind of looking around. And Swinnerton came in kind of swinging, kind of like, hey, Mass Timber's the way to go. We got to do CLT here. We can meet the numbers. We can hit all your numbers. We can get the project to pencil. We were struggling with that prior. And so, you know, their Timber Lab group was had just been formed uh, around that time. So they were excited to, I think, utilize some of their, their new toys, their new fabrication plant up in North Portland. And um, I think this was one of the first projects they ran through that plant. So that really pushed us into CLT and into mass timber. Why was CLT the way to go? I mean, mostly for speed and the size of plate that we were looking at and just size of building. I think it ended up being the most conducive to what we were talking about. Not only is it a Amazing nod to the Pacific Northwest with the lumber industry up here being so big, but it does provide that warmth within our building, but it also helped tighten up the schedule. And, you know, the other option was doing um, a poured concrete building where, you know, we're pouring floors and pouring columns and we couldn't, that was, there are two, two issues with that. One, we couldn't open up the space as much as we wanted to. And two, a bulk of our construction took place in the middle of winter and you can't pour concrete in the pouring rain in the Pacific Northwest, at least not successfully. So that's, that's when the delays would come into place. So, I mean, all of the mass timber went in. I think our topping out ceremony, it was pouring rain and it did not slow us down. We have uh, we did a time-lapse camera of the construction and you see pieces being lifted into place as it's pouring rain, as there's snow on the ground, as there's wind blowing and not even a hiccup when it came to our schedule. And again, going with the mass timbers that really allowed us to open up the space. It feels warmer, more inviting. And our construction tear down to move in was I think slightly less than a year. So what would you say your biggest design challenge was in meeting the needs of the client? The square site was was tough. I mean, when we typically try to lay out office buildings, you know, you want to keep them to around 80 foot in total width so you can get enough daylight from both sides of the building. We couldn't do that on this site, so we had to get a little bit creative on how we got all that square footage to fit. And what we ended up doing was, in a way, taking two office buildings, setting them side by side and, and putting a daylit atrium through between the two. So that gave us the square, essentially the square form, but got us a lot of daylight down through the middle of the project. And it also became an organizing feature for the entire project. We kept going back and forth with the city about entries. You know, Harder wanted the entry on the back towards the parking lot, towards the neighborhood, because that's where all their staff park. The city said no you have to have an entry off MLK. But actually that became a big design driver that overlaid onto the larger massing and this and the size of the site. Because now that atrium could tie the two entries together and kind of unify these two office plates. When you visit the building or you walk through the building, the part T of the building is very clear from that point of view. And the wayfinding is, I mean, again, it's not a large building, but it's really kind of easy to move around the building. And I think it also helped harder create some community 
within the building. So we put their canteen or kind of their cafeteria space, their kitchen just off this atrium towards the back. Uh, with a, they have a nice big deck out there. And again, you have visual access to all that when you enter the building. So I think it's a, just a really great way to just tie all the staff together. The new building is leaps and bounds different, but our new building is, it's very open. There's a ton more, there's over a hundred windows in the building and there's, there's skylights at in a big open area in the middle to where the light can flow down. There's, there's not a, there's not a room or a corner in that building that isn't flooded with natural light, which is the polar opposite of the previous building that we had. Everything is a lot more open. The collaboration space is immense. There's 11 conference rooms throughout the building of all different shapes and sizes. So you're able to book a little conference room for four people all the way up to one for 25 to 30 people. So there's a ton of flexibility in the space and we're able to kind of move throughout the building based on, you know, our daily needs. For, for those who are going to be listening that don't live in Portland, I've lived here my whole life. And historically, Actually, the whole area along MLK has come so far from like when I was a kid, you wouldn't even at one period in our city drive down MLK at night and feel safe. And, and it's, it's come a long way and, and a lot of, there's been a lot of improvements all over, but there are still problems with some of the civil unrest. And I, that, that's, I'm sure, why all of their MLK facing windows were boarded up. What, what design decisions did you make? with the building to take that possibility into consideration? Well, initially the design decision was to open the building up to MLK as much as we could, as much as we would to any street, right? I mean, mean, like any building that we design, you know, really wants to address that urban edge and it wants to engage the pedestrians and, you know, it, it wants to do all these things. Now, granted, there's a lot of differences between like a retail at the ground floor and an office at the ground floor, especially an office that not a lot of random people are walking into. I mean, you have to kind of have business there to walk through the doors. So we wanted to make sure that the architecture opened up to the street just like we would. But I think there was a little bit of like, well, we don't want passersby to be peering into the building and staring at people and making people feel uncomfortable on the interior of the building. So there was a lot of discussion about what type of glass we put into the project, kind of reflectivity we had or tint. We talked a ton about that. While in construction, you know, summer of 2020 hit us. Right. (laughs) You know, we have the superstructure up. We're starting to put up brick cladding going on. And then, you know, the various marches and some of them that which unfortunately got out of hand along MLK. And we, we had some vandalism and that kind of thing during construction. So, you know, all those memories come flooding back for the last 60 or 70 years. You know, Harder was like, hey, this obviously is still an issue for this street. What are we going to do to address it? And it was kind of like, well, we've already built it. It's already gone through design review. I don't know what options we really have, to be honest. So we met with the city a number of times trying to figure out what we could do. In the end, the city came back and said, well, the only thing we're going to allow you to do is board it up with plywood, which is a very interesting reaction, right? Kind of what we don't, didn't want to be doing. Right. It's like, well, you you want us to board it up with plywood. Okay. Well, I I understood the reason because they know that's temporary, right? Right. They know that's not a permanent fix. You're not going to leave it there indefinitely. But in the meantime, we still wanted to put in some kind of security 
gate or window covering of some kind on the exterior. So we started moving down that route, actually. We started building that into the headers of all the windows, just in case. Then we came across this film that we'd actually used on a previous project downtown Portland. Window security film is a sheet of material applied directly to the window. It protects against damage from windstorm debris, blast events, and forced entry. It's made up of one or more layers of polyester film that have been laminated together with unique adhesives. They can range in thickness from 4 mils to 15 mils or even higher. Generally, the thicker the film, the more durable and less likely it is to be broken, torn, or punctured. They're available in a broad range of styles from clear to reflective. These films can block UV rays to reduce heat gains and mitigate sun damage to interior finishes, furnishings, and retail merchandise. We tested it out. We had the client come out and throw bricks at it. You could not break the window. It was amazing stuff. Wow. So we ended up putting that on all the ground floor windows, and it worked brilliantly. They haven't had any issues. The last thing we wanted to do was have bars on the window or the the wire in between the panes of glass like that the whole point was to open up the space so it was an amazing option that anchor moisten came up with to put this reflective coating on the window almost like a skin that still allows every ounce of light to come into the building but also provides a level of protection that is not even seen walking by the building you would never know the film was on there. The only the, the only thing is, is it's reflective. So as we get people walking by, if you're in a first floor, you sometimes see people, you know, fixing their hair, checking themselves out in the window. But it's 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 a good laugh. Wow, I, I I I'm so surprised. I don't. I mean, I've heard of a lot of different films that you can put on glass, but I want to go throw a brick at a window now. I know, right? I wanna, you know, test I want to try it out. I can yeah. tell you which windows you may not break, but. Yeah, call up harder. Hey, Michael said I could come over and throw some bricks at your window. He might let you. I don't know. That's I'm I'm definitely filing that one away in my brain right now. <laughs> yeah. So tell me what went a little south during construction that could have been done differently during design or during the course of writing the specs that could have prevented that, or or something that was a real challenge during construction that you had to change your path. So there's definitely one, and it was it was one close to my design heart. The building itself, I, I may have mentioned it, but it, the entire building is clad in in brick, a dark red, kind of brown red brick. You know, we knew this wanted to be kind of historical reference, and some of the we kind of surveyed the buildings up and down MLK, and what we found was that there were a lot of simple warehouse facades, but there were there was always some unique element to it, something that was folded in that maybe you had to stand there and look at the building for a few minutes to catch, right? It's like the building wasn't revealing itself all at once. And so we were trying to figure out, like, what could we do to our project that would give it that little overlay? So what we decided to do that would be kind of, kind of fun, kind of whimsical, maybe, is... Um, the entire facade is actually rotated just ever so slightly. And you don't notice it unless you're standing at a corner and you're looking down the street. But each facade actually pulls away. So there's not a 90 degree corner on the whole building. So that sounded like a pretty interesting thing. Fairly easy to do in brick. Well, it turns out it is easy to do in brick, but it depends whether you're cutting the bricks in the field or you're actually making them and firing them as unique elements at that angle, which you could do. 
So we had our traditional kind of brick spec in there. So they were cutting all the bricks and, you know, forming these off-angled corners on the exterior. And when you cut this brick, it changes color on the interior of the brick because of the glaze that was on it. And so it changed the color at every single corner. And it was fairly prominent. It was like you'd walk out there and it was like, oh, what's, what's happening to this brick? Why, why is it doing that? We went back and forth trying to figure out if we could paint the edges, paint the cut edges, or you know what, how we could treat them to get them to look more similar. And we, we did end up using kind of a stain and a, a glaze in the field. So, I mean, I've done a lot of brick buildings, and I, I guess I hadn't ever cut them at random angles before and put them together. I think that's also, and again, coming from my spec writer background, a perfect example of you know, over the course of my career, I hear a lot. Uh, we just we do that all the time. Just just put that in there. That we do it all the time. And you may do something all the time, but if you're doing something just a little bit different with it, it changes the game. You don't ever get to get complacent or that whole we've always done it this way. Yeah. The, those terms we never want to hear. I don't have time. Yeah. Every time somebody says to me they don't have time, I say, you don't have 10 times the amount of time to do it later during construction. Right. So you, you need to find the time now to cross that T or dot that I or coordinate that thing. Yeah. So overall, at the end of the day on your project, what you ended up with, how far off was that from what you originally designed? Or did you were you able to say, stay pretty true to your original vision? You know, something that uh, I think all architects wrestle with, right? And the worst thing you can do is like go back and pull up the initial renderings and take photos and look at the rendering and go, ah, how close did I get? Um, I would say on harder, we're really, really close to the original renderings. So from that point of view, I think we were pretty successful in staying true to the design. So do you think this kind of modified integrated project delivery really played into that? decisions being made sooner and being and decisions being made. Yeah, I think there's a design process component to this. And my team at Ancrum, we've been trying to perfect the design process for a number of years now. We'll never get it there, of course. It's ever evolving as we all know, but there are things you can do in the design process to streamline it and make it a bit more linear so it doesn't feel like you're kind of all you're always redesigning or always going in circles after you learn something new right once you go through that design process enough times you should know what questions you need to ask and in what order you need to ask them to some extent and again it's always evolving and changing per project per client per site per city whatever but there are some strict templates out there that you could start to follow. And I think this is a good example of that. We kind of knew everything we needed to know and we knew what we didn't know. And we just started asking those questions and we didn't design anything until we knew the answers to that. And I think that's some frustrations I had on earlier projects in my career is that I felt like we were always so eager as architects, we're always so eager just to design and draw. Right? We always want the pen and we want to put it to paper and we want to start drawing stuff. And that, that can work out really well with the right client. But oftentimes I found that, it, yeah, I got excited to draw stuff, but I didn't know enough about what I was drawing or what I was designing. And therefore I'd have to redraw it again and again and again and again. And, you know, some architects, I think, 
like that process. I personally did not like it. I didn't want to have to redesign the building 10 times before it got built. So with Harder, you know, it was definitely part of the goal of the project on our side, on the architecture side, was to see how streamlined we can make it. Could we set up a decision matrix with the client, with the contractor, where, okay, we're going to make this decision, and then we're going to design for that decision, and then move on, right? We have had some projects where clients have gotten a little frustrated with that process because they're also eager to see the sketch and the rendering and, you know, the pretty stuff and the cool stuff. Um, and often- I want to open the present. Yeah. It's like, well, where's the rendering? Where's the rendering? It's like, well, we're week four. You don't get a rendering yeah. yet. I have 23 questions to ask you before we even come close to that, right? And once you talk them through the process, they totally get it. And I think Harder was, was exactly that. So I, I would also say, you know, Swinnerton was a, a huge help in that regard in terms of their experience with Mass Timber. I mean, they made that process probably feel a lot simpler than it should have. They knew exactly what they were doing and they handled a lot of that. So from that point of view, that made our job pretty easy, honestly. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I just know by our conversation the other day that we're, we're kindred spirits in the fact that you can be efficient and, uh -huh. and still be creative. I often tell people that I look at projects like children because I raised a few of those and, you know, each one is a unique individual and grows and evolves in different ways. That said, you know, your boundaries for your children are pretty much the same. There are certain things that can stay constant and can be a process, but, um, you know, it just, because one of the things I've seen in the course of my career, having been around the block once or twice, is we're never putting the pencil down. Number one, that's blowing project budgets out of the water. We're not putting the pencil down. We are not properly mentoring and overseeing our younger professionals who are learning. And we're not making decisions and sticking to them or even making them at all. What do you think? Completely agree. You know, I I carry the design flag everywhere, right? Like I am a designer to my core and I completely agree with you. And I think some people would say like, well, you can't do both of those things. But I actually believe that the constraints of a project make you more creative. When you're in school, you're trying to design projects with zero constraints. And to be honest, I, I, I don't, I don't, you don't, you don't get your best work doing that because you're, you know, you're grasping at a thousand different ideas. If you can narrow that to 20 ideas, um, I think you're way better off because then you can develop those 20 ideas and you can focus, you know, talking about this with some colleagues and everybody has to complain. We have to complain about budget, right? All the time. It's like, well, we know we don't have enough money. We don't have enough budget. We don't have enough fee, you know, all this stuff. I mean, sure, I'm not going to say that doesn't happen, but what I'm going to say is that you could have an unlimited budget for your building, and that doesn't mean you're going to create a good design in product. It just doesn't. In fact, I've seen... It, it also doesn't mean you're not going to run out of budget. You probably will, right? And yet when you have some constraints, and I, I just feel like that's when the best architecture emerges, is from those constraints. Now things can be overly constrained for sure. So there's there's a there's a there's a balance in there. And I would say 
you're spot on with the children analogy. I feel like if I didn't give my three-year-old any constraints, then God knows what would happen. They become evil people. Evil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, applies the same. So we're getting close to being out of time. So I have to ask you the big, fi- the big final question. Okay, shoot. If you were king of the world and you had absolute, complete control over whatever for your project, what are the top, top three fundamental changes or corrections that you would just say, this is the way it's going to be from now on in our industry? What would you change as opposed to what most people are doing now? So this this answer could potentially launch us into a whole nother discussion. Episode number two with Michael Great. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But my answer is to unify the industry under one roof. I think the way that architecture, design, and construction have been fractured over the last 100 plus years is not doing anyone any favors. And I know there's been a couple firms, construction companies, et cetera, that have coalesced all the disciplines and you know contractor under one roof. And I know there's struggles there and I get all that. I'm not saying that's not hard, but again, you said I'm king of the world and I can change this. So I would put construction, design, engineering, development, all under one roof. I just feel like there's so much waste that occurs between all those different groups um, as a project moves forward that it's frustrating that our industry is kind of so behind other industries. In terms of efficiency and streamlining and cutting waste and cutting time and building things on site even seems kind of archaic in a way, right? So. We have a long ways to go to catch up to these other industries, but I think doing everything under one roof as one group would be a significant shift. At some point we need to get together because I want to see this harder building now. Yeah. But I do I do appreciate you spending the time with us today. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn more, Visit rcat.com forward slash podcast to see photos, details, and more related project and product information that we discussed today. While you're there, take a look around rcat.com. For over 30 years, rcat has been the resource for AEC professionals to find the right products for their project. Try rcat and see how their tools can save you time and money and help you get ahead on your next project. Visit rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. If you enjoyed the show, you can support us by subscribing, leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back to share more stories and lessons learned to help you navigate your next project.